finished what I intended to do originally. We only went through verse 13, and this week we're, going, we're not going to get done what I had intended to either. So we'll pick up the rest of the passage next week. If you have been preparing for these sermons by reading ahead, reading the passage that we're going to look at, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 24 this morning. Let's imagine a scenario where God promised he obligated himself to save every single person who ever lived. If God did that, what would happen if several people didn't get saved? Then it would mean that either God failed on his promise or that we have an unjust God. But God never promised to save every individual. He did not promise to save everybody. He did not obligate himself even to save every single Jew, did he? Instead, in his mercy, he chose to save a few Jews and he decided to open the door to the Gentiles as well. And so what we're learning here in Romans chapters 8 and 9 is that our salvation is 100% a gift of God. And when we see salvation as the Bible describes it, we stop complaining to God about injustice and about lying, you know, you didn't follow through on your promise, and we start falling down in praise and worship to Him because He was so merciful as to choose us to salvation. Now the question that Paul wants to address here in chapters 9-11 through 11 is what about Israel? What are you doing with Israel? Because Israel doesn't seem to be a part of your picture anymore. You have made these big promises to, to uh, Abraham and then to, to Moses and to, I'm sorry, Abraham and then to David. And then now, now what? How are they not a part of your program anymore? Why are they being set aside? And so he wants to answer that question. But here in chapter 9, his focus is on why has Israel rejected Christ when God promised that they would accept him? And that's the focus of verses 1 through 5. The Jews have not accepted the gospel. Remember, Paul says, I'm just, I'm just torn apart because of this, and I wish I myself were accursed so that they could accept Christ. But, but it's not because God's promise had failed. That's what verse 6 tells us. And so the first wrong answer that we can give to that question of why is Israel not accepting Christ, the first wrong answer is that God is unfaithful. The truth is God is not unfaithful. He has not promised to every single Jew that they would come to Christ. In fact, if we go back to the Old Testament, he uses the examples of the very first immediate descendants of Abraham. They all were not even recipients of the blessing, right? It was only Isaac, not Ishmael. And then God's choice was not based on something that Isaac did or Ishmael didn't do or did do. And the proof for that is in God's choice of Jacob over Esau because he chose them or he made clear his choice before they were even born, before they had done anything good or bad. And so the first wrong answer is that that God is unfaithful. Let's see if I can get this to work. Can you advance that first one for me, Paul? I need a head start. It's like, you know, riding a bike. If I can get that first one. So what we're going to see today is that God is completely just and good to choose one individual for salvation over another. God is completely just and good to choose one individual for salvation over another. So the first claim is God is unfaithful. He didn't follow through on his promise. The second claim is God is unjust. Let me see if I have some review here. Yeah. 
there's, there's a review that, of what we've looked at so far. So before I transition into this passage, let me read it for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in head first. This is the Word of God. Beginning, beginning with verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but it depends on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then... He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God is completely just to choose one individual for salvation over another. That's what we're going to see today. So, so he's already shown that God is not unfaithful. He hasn't fought, gone back on his promise. It had always been that way. When he made that promise to Abraham and to Moses and to David that, that he, they would receive great blessing, It did not mean that every single descendant of Abraham would receive blessing, right? Instead, God is faithful. If any Jews are not believers today, and they're not recipient of the promise, maybe you're looking around and saying, I know some Jews, and they're not receiving God's blessing. God's not blessing those who bless them and cursing those who curse them. So what's going on? And and we might say, well, God failed on His promise, but that is not the case. Paul wants to make it clear that is not the case. God did not fail on His promise. The reason reason that some Jews today do not accept Christ and that others do is the same reason that individual Jews accepted God, believed in God in the Old Testament, and others did not. And that is that it had nothing to do with their ethnicity, did it? Do you remember what verse 6 said when we looked at last week? Uh, It says, not all are Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, not all are recipients of the spiritual blessings that God had promised who are actual physical descendants of Israel. So the reason that one person is a believer and another is not is the same reason it's always been. It's based on God's choice. God chose the younger son of Abraham over the older son. God chose the younger son of Isaac over the older son. Now, if what Paul is saying is true, then we have to ask some serious questions. And the first question that naturally follows is the question that Paul asks in verse 14. 
Look at that question there. Well, really, a combination of two questions. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? So he, he says it in such a way to say, we can't attribute injustice to God, can we? We can't go there. If God chooses some individuals to be saved and others to be rejected and condemned, then in the most respectful way that we can, we want to ask the question, isn't that unjust of God? Isn't that unjust of God to choose one over the other, not on the basis of anything that they have done? Isn't that unjust? In other words, doesn't God have to treat all sinners the same way? And Paul's immediate response is, may it never be. Do you see that at the end of verse 14? This is the strongest adversative in the Greek language. It's actually one word, but but we translate it this way, God forbid, or may it never be. That is, may we never attribute any injustice to God. We can never say that God has to do it that way. Otherwise, now we have put ourselves in judgment over God. So the question then that follows is, so how then can God do this? How can God choose Isaac over Ishmael? How can God choose Jacob over Esau if they hadn't done anything good or bad? How can God choose you over your unbelieving neighbor? And what we need to recognize is that God would be completely just to damn every single one of us to an eternal hell. Is that true or not? If God chose to, if God had determined to, could He not have judged every single one of us for our sin? And that's one of the points that Paul has been making in this letter. That when we stand before the courtroom of God's justice, we have our mouths closed. We can't say anything. Because no amount of goodness will make up for the evil that we have committed against God. In fact, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks after God. So if that's the case, then, then if, and if God had chosen to do so, he, he would have been completely just to condemn us to an eternal hell. But look at what he does instead, verse 15. For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul reminds his readers of this statement that God made to Moses. The people of Israel had, had justified. We need to think back to, to when this statement comes. This is from Exodus chapter 30. Um, it's around 32. Let me see if I can find the exact one here. You, you can look in the margin of your Bible and help me here. Exodus 33:19 is where it comes from. Exodus 33:19. So in verse 15, this is a quotation from what God had said to Moses. And we need to think about what was happening during that time. The people of Israel had just defiled themselves by disobeying God and they set up an idol of worship. What kind of idol was it? It was a golden calf, wasn't it? And so Moses comes down, he's furious, he hears the sound of of rumbling. It sounds like the whole community is involved in this, including their uh, uh, designated leader for the time, Aaron, Moses' brother. And he comes down and he breaks the tablets on the ground and then he goes, I need to go back up and intercede for you guys. What is God going to do about this? And God was... Furious as well, he wanted to destroy them. And, and Moses pleads with God. you remember this? 
And he sends the mountain, Moses does, one more time, intercedes for the people, and he says, God, will you show me your glory? Will you show me your glory so that we know that you're not going to abandon us, that you stay with us forever? And here's how God responds in Exodus 33:19, which is recorded for us or, or restated for us here in verse 15. And it is this. Moses, I love mercy on whom I have mercy, and I love compassion on whom I have compassion. And his point is this. Whenever I show mercy, it is always a result of my choice. And so when I show mercy, it's not unjust of me, Moses, to show mercy on some and not to others. And, and we could say by extension what Paul is, is trying to, to say to us is that it's not unjust of God to choose Isaac over Ishmael or Jacob over Esau over, or you over your unbelieving brother. When God showed mercy on Isaac and Jacob and you, He did it on the basis of His choice. And He has every right to do that. He will show mercy on whom He desires and compassion on whom He wants. And the point is, is if we recognize ourselves as we actually are, Sinners before God, before the holy God, and deserving of His full and just wrath. If we see ourselves in that way, for when we see God show mercy to some, including us, we will not say, why didn't you show it to everybody? Because that's the wrong question. The question is, why is He showing mercy to any one of us? Now it's important to consider what kind of mercy God showed here in this story back in Exodus 32. The people had made the, the golden calf And God could have responded by destroying them all, couldn't He? If He so chose to do, He he could have destroyed them all. And, And if His response was based on justice alone, do you know who would have been the first to be destroyed? The one who put this all together. Who was it? It was Aaron. Did Aaron die that day? No. The Bible tells us that only 3,000 men or 3,000 people died. And apparently what happened was the Levites went into each of the... the the tents to find out who was repentant, who was willing to turn. And God spared, I would suggest to you, close to a million or more people that day who were all involved in that act of idolatry. What God's saying is the fact that I'm showing mercy to some and destroying 3,000 others is my prerogative. I get to choose on whom I will show mercy. God's mercy is based on his choice. God shows mercy to some, and it's based on. Uh, I'm sorry, the other way around. God's choice is based on His mercy. That's what we see in verse 16. God's choice is based on His mercy. In other words, God's choosing is not based on man's work. Look at verse 16 here. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. So we could just say all of the things that we could com- uh, accomplish, that we could do. It's not us willing it to happen. If God, you have to show me mercy. I'm going to force it to happen through my will or through my running. It doesn't depend on any of that. God's choice does not depend on any of that. It depends on God who has mercy. It depends on God's mercy. So do you recognize that this whole group over here whom God has not chosen and that will eventually go to an eternal hell, the problem is not that some of these people want to get saved And God is just unjust in not letting them. He's kind of standing over here like this. No. 
You know, I know you want to get saved. I'm not going to let you. That's not the problem. The problem is not that some are running to God and banging on the door and saying, let me in, I want to be saved. And God's just being obstinate against them. That's not the problem. The problem is, Romans 3.10, no one is seeking after God. Not even one. You weren't even even seeking after God. No one seeks after God. Is that consistent with what Paul has been saying in the letter to the Romans? Turn back to chapter 8. Let me show you. Our depraved condition before we came to Christ. And I would suggest to you this is the condition of every single human being. When they come into this world, they are completely and totally depraved. Chapter 8, verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. He's, he's an enemy. He's at, at war with God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this is what Paul's saying. No one is running for God. No one is trying to search after God and say, God, would you please accept me? Because they're all depraved. We were all depraved. To the point where we had, not only did we not have the ability to do so, but we didn't even have the desire to come to God. And even if we wanted to, we didn't have the ability. That's what verse 7 says. They're not even able to do so. They can't run after God. And what God's saying is, I choose some over the others. I draw people unto me. This is what Jesus would say. You know, I will draw all men unto me. That that he is the sheep and that or he is the shepherd and he will call his sheep. And when they hear his voice, they come. For God to choose one person to be a recipient of his blessing, it comes solely on the basis of his mercy. It comes solely on the basis of his mercy. God can choose whomever he pleases. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He will have, show compassion on whom he shows compassion. All right. Now, if you thought that was some pretty deep water theologically, put your seatbelt on because it gets a little bit deeper here. Here, Paul takes this idea of God's choice one step farther and says that not only does God choose the people on whom he will have mercy and compassion, but listen to this. God actually chooses the people whom he will harden. God will choose whom he will harden. And yet, Remember, Paul is here trying to defend God's justice. God, how could you be right in choosing some over the other? How could you be right in choosing Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, you over your unbelieving neighbor? How could you be right in doing that? And in in defending that point, Paul is saying, here's an amazing truth that every believer needs to come to grips with, and that is that God actually can be glorified in the hardening of wicked men. God is hard God, excuse me, is glorified in the hardening of wicked men. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed to the whole earth. Do you see that? There in the text we need to we need to get this here. For this very purpose, scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. This comes from Exodus 9. And there God is saying, Pharaoh, do you know why you exist? You exist 
so that I can be glorified through your defiance, through your hardening. I'm going to be glorified through this. Do you see what's going on here? That Pharaoh, is he thinks he's acting on the basis of his own free choice, isn't he? But it's actually God who determined how Pharaoh would be used and why, so that his name would be magnified. Do you see that in the text? I raised you up. God raised Pharaoh up, allowing Pharaoh to reject God for a long period of time and for a specific purpose. And what was that specific purpose? Notice in the text. To demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. The ten plagues served as a way to magnify God's name in all the earth. We understand it on this side of that event, don't we? Now that we look back on it, we see how great, how much great uh, glory God received from the ten plagues. And still people today know of God's great power that, that was expressed there. Why? Because God had chosen to raise up Pharaoh so that his power would be displayed. Now this, this truth may trouble you, but, but you need to keep these tru- two truths in view. First, God hardens whomever he pleases. Do you see that at the end of verse 18? He hardens whomever He desires. We'll come to that here in just a second. And the second thing that we need to keep in view is that man, Pharaoh in this case, is responsible for his own sin. So we can't say, well, because that's actually going to be the next question that, that the readers potentially would, would, would address with Paul. Well, if God is the one who does it, then why is Pharaoh being judged, Right? But we need to keep these two things in view. God is the one who hardens whomever he pleases. That's what verse 18 tells us. And man is responsible for his own sin. So let's look at Paul's conclusion here, which is God's mercy is given to whom? To people whom he chooses. God is merciful to whom he chooses, and he hardens whom he chooses. Everyone deserves God's hardening. You deserve God's hardening. I deserve God's hardening. That is a, a place where our heart is so hardened that we don't even listen to God anymore. We go on into our own desires and our lusts and we move on to that position and and plunge ourselves into destruction and perdition. Every single person deserves that. No one deserves God's mercy. No one deserves God's grace. That's why we call it grace. It's undeserved. And yet, God is merciful, isn't He? God is just. We deserve hardening, we don't deserve mercy, and yet God is merciful to some. God has mercy. Look again at verse 18. He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. So now if you're tracking with what Paul is saying, you now understand that God stands behind both good and evil. God stands behind both good and evil. That is, He stands behind good by showing mercy to some and taking full responsibility for everything good that is done in this world. Anything good that is done and done with a proper attitude is all a result of God. Because God is the the Father of heavenly lights who, who gives us everything that we have, James 1 says. But also we need to recognize that God actually stands behind evil as well. But he stands behind evil in a different way than he stands behind good. You see, he takes responsibility for everything good that happens. But when he stands behind evil, he he plans it, he controls it, 
But he doesn't take responsibility for it in the sense that he has to be held to judgment for it. That is, the individuals are responsible for it. So what Paul is saying is if, one, if God chooses one for good and another he leaves for evil, the next question that we have to ask is this. How is that fair? Right? How could God possibly be fair in judging the wicked since He's the one who determined to harden them? Right? I will. He promised even before Pharaoh came around and started doing all the things he did, he told to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So, so how can Pharaoh be responsible? How can any wicked person that goes to hell be responsible for their sin? That's the next question that he wants to address in verses 19 through 29. Again, we're not going to get to all these, but... But here's the... Um, I can't read that up there, so... Here's the response to the false claim about God. God is not unfair to condemn a person whom He hardens. Because here's the question that, that we might bring up. Verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does He, God, still find fault with them? These wicked people. Because God, how are they supposed to resist? Look at verse 19. For who resists His will? How could they resist Him? If God said, Pharaoh, I'm going to raise you up for this very purpose so that you display My power through your failure to obey Me, then how can we, how can God ever judge Pharaoh? I mean, could Pharaoh have resisted God's will and said, no, I want to respond to you with obedience? Do you know, Paul could answer that question by going back to Exodus. And he could show that Pharaoh was responsible for his own sin. That the text actually says something else besides that God hardens his heart, but that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, doesn't it? And so in a sense that there is a sense in which Pharaoh has responsibility, isn't it? That he was not forced to do anything that he didn't want to do in his heart. But notice, that's not the answer that Paul gives. Instead, he gives us this answer in verse 20. So if we're questioning God's fairness, then here's his response. On the contrary, who are you, O man, that's asking the question, that is, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Now this is an answer we may not like. Here's Paul's response. We don't have the right to question God's fairness. We don't have the right to question God's justice. Paul's point is not that it's a bad question or that we shouldn't ask the question, but if we're going to use that type of reasoning to excuse our sin or someone else's sin who is wicked, then we're asking the wrong question. We don't understand God. We don't understand how deep our sin is. He says, you know, judging God for choosing one over another is about as silly as, as a little lump of clay complaining to its potter. Or, you know, maybe for, for those of you who play Legos, right? It's, it's as silly as a Lego. A Lego brick saying to you, the builder, why did you make me into this shape? So why is it a silly question then? If, if we look at it, I mean, what could Pharaoh possibly do? Here's Paul's answer here. He starts to move towards the right answer because really he starts out, if you're, if you're judging God in that way, then you're doing the wrong thing. Okay, so don't go there. But, but let me start to move towards the right answer. So here's a movement towards the right answer, and that is that God has the right to do with us as He pleases. Verse 21. Notice what the text says. Or does not the potter, in this case God, have the right over the clay to make from the same lump 
one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Okay, so let's take this to how God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Okay, if God chose to choose from one lump, Abraham, one for honorable use, Isaac, and one for, how's it say there? For, for common use, that is something to be discarded, then, then is that his prerogative? Can he do that? Is that unfair of God? No, he's the potter, right? Or he's the Lego builder. He can do what he pleases with, with the resources that he has. And if he chooses to choose one for honorable use and one for common use, then that's his prerogative. Now, here's a fuller answer that may be, that may be a little bit more helpful. It's something that we need to think about when we think about God and how he chooses one over the other. And it is that God shows wrath to many and grace to some in order to highlight his mercy, in order to show his greatness. Look at verse 22. Paul says, here's a possibility. What, what if it were this? What if God, in choosing some for honorable use and some for common use, what if God were able to display his greatness? Let's read the text. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, okay, so think, think of Pharaoh in that case, what if he endured with much patient vessels of wrath, people who were destined for destruction? And then verse 23, and, and what if he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory? Even for us Jews and also among the Gentiles, right? What if God did it for those purposes? Now is God unfair in doing that? In other words, what he's saying is God's wrath being poured out on some, like with Pharaoh, actually does something to highlight his mercy. What if he, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with vessels destined for destruction and brought them over to this side? So we learn or are reminded about two important things. First, God raises enemies and then bears with them for a long time. God raises enemies and then bears with them for a long time. That's what he did with Pharaoh. Why would he do that? Well, amazingly, the answer is that he wants to show his wrath and he wants to pour out his grace. God, God allows some wicked people to rise up and to live and to work as they please for a while so that God can display his wrath on them and then his mercy on others. Think about it this way. Why was God so patient with Pharaoh? Okay, if, if all that mattered was the end result, which was what? To get the people of Israel out of Egypt. If all that mattered was that end result, could not God, if he wanted to, cripple Pharaoh from the very beginning and give one plague the plague of the death of the firstborn. Do you think Pharaoh would submit himself to God in that situation and that he'd let him, the people go? So, so then we have to ask the question, why does God delay? Why the other nine plagues? Why take so long? In getting to the point, which is to get Israel out of there. And the reason in the text is that God wanted to display His wrath and His power and to show His mercy. 
God wanted to display something about his character that we would otherwise not have seen as clearly when he delayed with Pharaoh for a time, allowed him to experience God's wrath, and then highlight his mercy to Israel in the same, at the same time. And this is consistent with what was said in verse 17, isn't it? That he, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in the whole earth. Christians, the story of God is the story of his long suffering with the wicked. That he gives so much time for people to repent. He does not judge them immediately. Instead, he pours out his common grace on them over and over and over again and gives, like for example, Pharaoh another opportunity. Pharaoh, here's your chance to repent. And yet, like Pharaoh, many still defy and reject him and want nothing to do with him. But do you know there are some with whom God patiently endures that resist him over and over and over again? And one day God shines the light of the gospel into their heart. He reveals their sin to them and the beauty of his holiness. And he, he shows them the great gift that he's given in Jesus who loved them and gave, them, gave himself for them. And when that light gets shown into that wicked person's heart, you know what happens? They come alive. Even though they had rejected God for a long time. And when that first person finally realizes that 100% of their salvation and their calling is owed to the merciful, great God who saves, they stand up and shout, Alleluia! Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to my God and to the Lamb who was slain for me. You know, that's what God did for me. How many times was I like Pharaoh and resisted his will? How many times did I delay in coming to God even though I knew what I needed to do? And yet God bore with me in order to highlight his mercy. And now I will sing His praises forever. Notice who is included in the story of God's mercy because He delays with some in order to show His wrath and then also to show His mercy. Verse 24, Even us whom He's also called, not among Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We'll pick up on this next week and see that the Old Testament confirms that God has chosen only a select number of Jews. In other words, He's rejected some Jews. So, while they might think, well, this promise is for the Jews, and so all the Jews should be over here in this category, in the category of God's blessing, what Paul is saying is, no, God has actually excluded some Jews because they're unwilling to repent, and he's, he's only chosen some. But, but he's also opened up the door to these Gentiles who can now come in and join this. That doesn't mean that all Gentiles are, but we'll, we'll look at that next week when we pick up verse 24. So the wrong answer as to why Israel has rejected God is that God is unfair or that he's unfaithful. The right answer is that Israel is proud. And that's what we'll see next time in verses 30 to 33. So let's consider a few principles this morning. Number one, our free will 
is compatible with God's sovereign rule. Our free will is compatible with God's sovereign rule. Now, I I don't know exactly how God's sovereign rule that He controls everything works out with my free will. I don't know how all those things work together. But you know what the Scriptures do not deny? The Scriptures do not deny that either of them exist. Somehow, both of them exist and they both work together. That I have a free will that's compatible with God's sovereign control. And from what I can tell, based on my study of the Scriptures and theology, is that no human has ever been coerced by God to do something that they didn't already want to do in their heart. No human has ever been coerced or forced like a robot to do something that they didn't already want to do in their heart. In other words, God never hardened someone who didn't take pleasure in that hardening. That's why in Romans 1 it says that God gave them over to what? Something they hated? No, it gave them over to their own pleasures, their lusts, the things that they wanted. God's saying, here, have it. You think this is the answer? Have it. And conversely, just as God has never coerced anyone to do something they didn't want to already do in their heart, God never has... um, God has never hardened someone who didn't take pleasure in their sins. There's no one out there clamoring clamoring for God and saying, you know, when they get to the judgment day, I wish I would have come in. I wish God would have accepted me. You know what Romans 3.10 says? No one seeks after God. Do you know why? Because they all love their sin. We all loved our sin. And so all the wicked will stand before God and they will not be able to claim, God, you wouldn't accept me. They can't put the blame back on God. God, now you need to come on, on the witness stand. You need to call to account your actions because you didn't accept me when I wanted to come. They're not going to be able to do that. Do you know why? Because God accepts all who come to Him. God accepts all who come to Him and God has never coerced, just as He's never coerced anyone to be hardened in the sense that they didn't, they're not doing something they didn't want to do. In the same way, I would suggest that God's never coerced anyone to become saved. Instead, He gives them a gift, which is a new heart. And that's when the light gets turned on, as I was talking about before. It wakes them up, them up to the reality of God's holiness and their own sin, and it causes them to desire to turn to Him. And so God's not creating robots here. That's the point. We all have a free will, but somehow it's compatible with how God is sovereignly ruling over all things where we can't do anything that's outside of His control. And so in that way, God stands behind every single good thing that's ever happened in the world And that He is the source, the author, the creator of all that is good. But He also stands behind the evil in the world in that He permits it. We don't say that He creates it or authors it or does it. He permits it. He allows it. He gives people over to it. But in no way does God take responsibility for it. And that's the good and sovereign God that we serve. And that's the kind of good God that we can trust because there is nothing within the entire universe that is outside of His control. Everything is under His command. And He can use both good and evil to accomplish His purposes. God can do that. And He can do that because He's planned it all. And so the trial that you're going through right now, the physical pain, the emotional strain, the grief, the conflict, the opposition, the injustice that you face, all of it is being accomplished 
are being used by God to accomplish good in you as a Christian. Romans 8.28. You can bank on that. Second principle to consider. God was never obligated to show you mercy. God shows mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. He shows compassion on whom he pleases. God takes a lump of clay and molds it into something for his purposes and in doing so, God is completely just and fair. Let me illustrate this for you. If Jesus went to a village with a hundred sick people and healed only two of them as he was passing through, would it be unjust of him to neglect the healing of the other 98? You see, the problem is when we look at our salvation and, and the rejection of these lost people, we're asking the wrong question, aren't we? We're asking the question, God, why are you unjust in not choosing every single person? I mean, if you have the power to save everybody, why don't you do it? And the problem is we're asking the wrong question, isn't it? The question is not, God, why would you be unjust in in ignoring, like for Jesus, why would you be unjust in ignoring 98? That's the wrong question. The question is, for Jesus, why would you have mercy on the two? And for us, God, why would you be merciful to heal me at all? Do you see what's happened here with our mindset when it comes to our view of salvation? We have adopted an entitlement mentality as if God owes us salvation. So God, pay on your your debt. You owe me salvation. You you owe it to my neighbor, my brother, my, my family member. And if God did owe salvation to everybody, then he would be unjust or he would be incapable. But but God doesn't owe salvation to anyone, including you and including me. So when a person is not saved and they end up in hell, we may bark out in anger, God, you're unjust, or we may blame it on something else. But what what if that was not the responsibility? What if it wasn't the responsibility of God's justice, but instead... God simply didn't choose to show mercy on them. There's no injustice on that. God can show mercy on whomever he pleases. Friends, the depth and the breadth of our sin deserve nothing less than God's ultimate wrath. And yet, for some reason, he chose to show mercy on some, like you. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, God has chosen you. I can assure you of that. And he did so, not because you willed or not because you ran. He simply chose you on the basis of his free choice to grant you mercy. And this is why we just sang, and we're going to sing here just in just a second. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands more made the wretched choice and they would rather starve than come? Why was I made to hear your voice, God. Or we sing, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, would die for me? Or how can it be that God would save a soul like me, that He would love a soul like me? Oh, how can it be? Or as Mac Lynch writes in his song, He knoweth the way that I take. O Lord, Thou art my life, and who am I to understand why? You died on a tree for a sinner like me. 
Lord, to self-make me willing to die. When we understand our salvation or how God has laid it out for us, that He called us to justification on the basis of His choice, which came on the basis of His mercy, all we can do is fall down humbly before God and say, God, why would you be so kind to me? Let's pray. Father, thankful for the reminder of our smallness in your universe. Lord, we we like to exalt ourselves up and put ourselves on a pedestal with regard to our works and our abilities. And it's texts like this in, in your word that help bring us back down to size and remind us that we are all deserving of your judgment, your wrath. For some reason, you decided to show mercy on us and we... We don't understand how that works. We don't understand how that works with our free will fully. But we are thankful, Lord, that you have called us to be a part of your family when thousands and millions and billions more have decided to make a wretched choice and would rather go on to their sin. Lord, our salvation is all of you, 100%. We own nothing of it in the sense that we accomplished it or earned it. All that we did was respond to your call with repentance and faith. And even that was given to us as a gift. And so we fall on you for grace, Lord. Keep us in your love all the way till the end. Help us to, to know you and to love you and to, and to respond to the great love that you've shown to us with mercy and to others and with, with glad obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.